The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. That's the sound of another day of protests in support of opposition politician Alexei Navalny and their violent crackdown in Moscow. Navalny was allegedly poisoned by Novichok in the summer, but survived thanks to an emergency evacuation to Germany. He voluntarily returned to Russia, only to be sentenced to three and a half years in prison for allegedly violating his parole when he was in Germany. Thousands of people have so far been detained during the demonstrations across Russia. Their grievances go much deeper than Navalny. In interviews, protesters spoke about their anger at corruption, economic stagnation and deteriorating living standards. Repeatedly, they complained that their children have no future in Russia. Today on The Exchange, a podcast from Reuters Breaking Views, our guest is Sergei Guriev. Sergei, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Dasha. Thank you for inviting me. Putin has been in power for two decades. Uh, the big question for everyone is what happens next? You've studied authoritarian regimes in other countries. What are the options? It's very hard to predict, to make predictions, especially about the future. These regimes may last for a very long time, and yet they may also collapse overnight. This regime is one of the great innovators in what uh, my co-author Daniel Trisman and myself call informational autocracies. This regime doesn't kill people by thousands or tens of thousands. It's not Stalin's regimes or uh, African or Latin American military junta. This regime thrives on censorship and propaganda, manipulation of information, cooptation and selective repressions against uh, uh, potential opposition or elites. And in that sense, this is the regime that has perfected those tools. And even when economic performance, as you mentioned, stopped uh, to make Russians happy, this regime has managed to turn the geopolitical adventure of 2014 into a new source of legitimacy. But the effect of 2014 is fading away. So Putin's popularity today is lower by something like 20 percentage points, 25 percentage points than uh, seven years ago. And it is approaching historical lows. So Putin is worried. And uh, the source of declining popularity is, of course, exactly what you said, economic stagnation, uh, injustice, uh, corruption, and people are asking questions. In the uh, first decade of Putin, in, uh, Russian GDP was growing at uh, roughly 7% a year. Incomes were growing at double-digit uh, uh, numbers every year. Since 2013, that has disappeared. Growth has actually uh, ran, out, run out of steam before uh, 2014. However, what Russians can see now is their real incomes are lower by something like 10 percentage points today than in 2013. And this is the moment when it strikes the point, strikes the nerve. And uh, another issue which has happened in two years ago is what's called pension reform. Uh, Putin raised the retirement age in 2018 by five years. That has been a highly unpopular uh, move, especially given that Putin has promised Russians that he would never do that repeatedly. And so that move also was very costly for 
Putin's approval. And the palace story also tells you that whenever Putin said we are forced to raise retirement age without any compensation to older Russians, just simply expropriating their pensions for five years worth, essentially. So talking about hundreds of thousands of rubles per person uh, Russian government has expropriated. This uh, is really tough to reconcile with the palace. It's, it's really difficult to estimate in the protest how many people really came out and the sort of tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands estimates. But I think it's fair just even just judging by the photos, it's fair to say that the movement isn't just contained to the metropolitan elite in Moscow and St. Petersburg. You had people coming out in very, very, very cold temperatures in Siberia. Is this a new thing? And what does it tell us about politics in Russia and the economy? So this is a new thing. It's not this year's thing. It's it's a trend which started a few years ago, exactly when uh, suddenly government realized that it should be afraid of protests in Moscow. And 2011 protests were mostly in Moscow. So the government decided to invest a lot of money in making Moscow a better place. And Moscow, if you don't care about politics and don't care about economic stagnation, you see a, a shining European city, really city. beautiful, uh, you, a really beautiful city. And uh, yet that, of course, came at a cost of not investing much in infrastructure, in healthcare, in schools outside of Moscow. And this uh, has changed the opposition agenda as well. And in 2011, Alexei Navalny would be the candidate, or in 2013, when he ran for mayor of Moscow, he would be the candidate of Moscow middle class. And he still is supported by Moscow's middle class. But what he's done since then, he's become also a candidate of the regions. So he, in his presidential campaign, he was not registered eventually in 2018 to run for president. But uh, in his presidential campaign of 2017, these were basically the first times when this uh, uh, FSB poisoner started to follow him and even tried to kill him, as we know now. But in his campaign in 2017, he traveled around Russia and the government was scared to see how well he connects to people in the regions. And this is exactly related to what you were talking about. People in the regions understood they have no opportunity. If you're in Moscow, you speak English, you have good education, your real estate is worth something. So if you can sell it and leave and uh, move to Baltic states or Indonesia or Czech Republic, or if, if, if your apartment is in the center of Moscow, you can move to Paris. Uh, but uh, if you are in a region, you are less likely to even have this exit opportunity. And locally in the regional economy, you know that all good jobs are taken by the governor's son, the uh, son or daughter of uh, KGB colonel, and so on and so forth. And so people start asking questions. Why our incomes are not growing anymore? Uh, what have we gained from annexation of Crimea? And what is the alternative? And to them, of course, Alexei Navalny is an alternative. Has Navalny succeeded in bringing the opposition together? Because obviously it's been very fragmented and there's been lots of embarrassing bickering and infighting. Are they doing better now? I think uh, today it's very hard to criticize Navalny, who definitely shown uh, 
shown intellectual consistency and courage. And uh, whoever is trying to bicker with Navalny today is doing a disservice to themselves. And in that sense, he is clearly the leader of opposition in Russia today. And people who protested on January 23rd, many of them would say, I don't share his views on this, on this, on this, but I need to protest his arrest. This is unfair. And uh, many people just uh, say, look, we should not except the situation where a citizen of Russia is poisoned and then arrested for surviving the poisoning. This is unfair. And in that sense, I think uh, he may have not united the opposition in the sense that everybody is behind his platform, but he's united the opposition in the sense that he's a symbol. So if we draw the analogy and uh, best case scenario for Navalny, I guess, is that Putin is becomes toxic and he decides somehow that yes indeed I should I have to make room um what what do you think his chances are of finding a successor and having a semi pseudo political transition which allows him to have immunity and to not face any legal problems after if he steps down and at the same time to keep the structure that stands behind him intact so this regime is very personalistic. This is not a regime where governance is done by a collegial body like in late Soviet Union, for example. This is not a party regime. There is no party in Russia. There is a ruling party called United Russia, but nobody is taking it seriously. Even Putin himself doesn't take it seriously. He's not a member of that party. There is no clerical group. There is no religious uh, uh, organization that runs Russia. The, the whole regime is based on one person. So regimes like this are very hard to uh, transition to a successor. It's not impossible. You can imagine a situation where Putin indeed somehow uh, goes into the shadow and new, more energetic people around the country. But uh, currently it looks like the whole legitimacy of this regime is based on Putin's own charisma. And it's very hard to find somebody else who will replace Putin. Uh, people talk about uh, Putin's own health problems, that he probably spends more uh, less time in actually running the country. Uh, but even if Putin uh, spends less time in, in working, he would probably still be in control. He would still be the decider in chief, the ultimate authority, exactly because Unlike everybody around him, he still has massive support. But I mean, that's what I think doesn't come across always in how people write about Russia, is that the people who support the structure behind Putin isn't sort of a homogenous structure, right? There are factions and it is a lot more complicated than just a block of people. And you have to get all these factions to agree on a successor, right? What impact does that have, these, these different groups? Um, is there anything? Uh, yes, uh, I think uh, I think uh, it is a simplification to say that Russia is a KGB state. Mm -hmm. Russian elite is highly heterogeneous. Russian business community is highly heterogeneous. Uh, Russia still is a modern, urban, educated country, despite the brain drain of the last uh, 10 years. And in that sense, of course, different Russians have different views. Different Russians have different visions of their future. And many of them are worried about the sanctions imposed on Putin, on his friends, on Russia, on the toxic 
because of a toxic image of Russia. So people are, of course, worried. However, one of the things that we've learned in 2020 is that this is the regime which kills people, not just censors you, not just turns off your favorite internet application, but just kills you with a poison. And many people would love to see Russia to become more competitive, more open, less antagonistic to the, towards the West. And uh, these people are just uh, silent because they're afraid. Yeah, I mean, amongst a heterogeneous group that you speak about, there's sort of these people who uh, people in the West like to call technocrats that Putin surrounds himself with. And they actually have won a lot of plaudits from, from the West for their macroeconomic management, particularly over the last year when, you know, um, but the budget deficit is less than 4%. Um, the GDP hasn't contracted as much as, as was expected. What, how, how do you explain this sort of two-track view of the economy, of sort of, you know, deteriorating living conditions on the one hand, but this outward-looking stability? I think uh, the, best, uh, the best comparison for Russia would be, uh, say, Turkey. And in Turkey, the president interfered in macroeconomics and pretty much created a, created a crisis out of thin air. Uh, so uh, President Erdogan uh, mismanaged macro. However, the overall structure of Turkish economy remains competitive. You still have very sophisticated business groups. You have small and medium-sized businesses that export to Europe. You have very well-run banks. So this is a situation where you mismanage macro, but don't fully destroy micro. In Russia, it's completely the opposite. The technocrats you mentioned, they run macro. So monetary policy in Russia is not just better than Turkish monetary policy, it's just good. If uh, you uh, talk to IMF people or if you talk to macroeconomists who write textbooks, Russia does exactly as it should. And uh, you can only praise the uh, Russian central bank's uh, monetary policy. Uh, and you also can find uh, pockets of meritocracy uh, within other ministries, in different regions. You would find uh, very skilled and honest uh, regional governors. So that is something that you can find here and there and here and there. You also find on, on average Russian state company, state-owned company or state corporation, is an inefficient and corrupt institution, but there are also exceptions there. If you look at Sberbank, Sberbank is a world-class company. And uh, uh, Russia, as I said, is very diverse. But last year is actually more complex than what you've, you've just said. In economic terms, Russia has done well and even better than most Western economies. As you rightly said, GDP contracted only by four percentage points. This is much better than any Western European country and at par with uh, uh, UK or US, right? And uh, yet, this is not the end of the story. There is a, uh, there is a dark side of this, uh, of this policy response. And this dark side is measured in human lives. Again, this is an informational autocracy, uh, which is very careful about uh, what Russians are supposed to know. So what Russians are told is that COVID deaths in Russia were only 60,000 uh, individuals. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm saying only because even 60,000 is a tragedy, but 60,000 per capita is actually much better 
than say most European countries. Uh, now it's 70,000, but I'm talking about 2020. But this is this is just a lie. This is an outright lie. Russian statistics are falsified. There is a lot of evidence of that. And just to cut the story short, I would give you a number of uh, excess mortality. So the best way to figure out how many people died in uh, 2020 of COVID is to look at excess mortality. Comparison of mortality in 2020 relative to, say, 2019 or to an average of previous few years or to a trend uh, of uh, previous few years. And you end up with a number of 300,000 or even 320,000. The uh, final number are not numbers are not published yet. They will be published in probably early February. But we are in the in the range where um, uh, per capita excess mortality in Russia is much much worse than in the U.S. in any European country, and is only behind three uh, Latin American countries: Peru, Ecuador, and Mexico. And in that sense, whenever Putin stands up and says our response to COVID was great, uh, that is just a lie. This is just uh, something that you can tolerate only if you believe Russian propaganda. If you look at the numbers like excess mortality, you see that Russia consciously chose not to spend resources and mm -hmm. let people die. The way it worked in April and May, Russia did introduce certain restrictive measures, but Russia did not roll out a generous a generous support package like European countries or the US. So people knew they cannot stay at home because they had to work, they have had to earn their living. And they did. If you look at the mobility data, Google and Apple data of how much time people stayed at home, how much time people shopped, how much time people worked, you see that Russians did work less than before the crisis, before the COVID crisis. But they did work a lot more than, say, French or Italian or Germans, and that caused the mortality. And in that sense, when we say that Russian economy has done well, this is correct. But that comes at the cost of huge shock in terms of mortality. We are talking about uh, 300,000 lost lives, and this is this is very unfortunate. And uh, uh, and this is where technocrats did their job well, but on average, on in total, the Russian government as a whole, of course, was very costly to the health of the Russian public in 2020. The, the other the other issue that I would like to mention is this micro issue. So in Russia, there is also a micro issue, investment climate, business climate, and so on. And this is where technocrats cannot do much because eventually business climate in Russia is not an issue that a minister of economy can resolve. Investment climate in Russia is the matter of uh, KGB, of FSB. So you, whether you are a successful Russian business person or successful foreign business person working in Russia, your main risk is not something that uh, Ministry of Economy can do or Ministry of Finance can address. It's uh, that you are expropriated and put in jail. And we've seen that happening before. And we shouldn't be surprised that uh, in Russia for almost a decade has seen capital outflow. Despite very low interest rates in the West, despite many potential investment opportunities in Russia, we see that investment to GDP ratio is stagnating and we see that capital is actually leaving Russia. So um, just speaking about the the past year, one of the things that I, I've also considered 
is the huge proportion of the Russian population or the working population that's employed by the state or state related entities. And, you know, stepping into those people's shoes, I just imagine how difficult it must be to be part of any kind of protest movement. Already, you sort of are targeted by the law. There are implications for your ability to exist as an economic agent, you know, to get bank accounts, etc. Afterwards, it's a really it's a really big sacrifice. What do you think the impact of this huge role of the state is in countries' abilities to sort of move past an authoritarian, inefficient leadership? I uh, I uh, used to work at the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development as a chief economist, and uh, uh, EBRD is the institution that thinks about those issues a lot, privatization, state capitalism, and so on. And what I'm going to say now doesn't represent the views of EBRD, of course, and I don't work at EBRD anymore. But I just, I would just say that I, I've really observed a lot of state companies around the world, and uh, I also thought about those issues, and I also talked to politicians willing or unwilling to engage in privatization. And everywhere, almost everywhere, except for, I would say, Norway, um, state companies are politicized. They're a tool to promote political interests. That's why politicians don't like privatization. They don't want to lose control. Somebody else, the taxpayer, is paying for inefficiency of a state company, while you, politician in office, have a major tool to promote uh, your political interests. It helps you to create jobs for people who vote for you, exactly like you said. It, uh, it uh, helps to uh, direct loans or business or, or procurement contracts towards companies or friends that support you financially or otherwise. So that is true in many countries. In Russia, it is, of course, much bigger because the state, as you rightly said, is so large. In Russia, the state doesn't control everything, but it controls commanding heights. It controls uh, energy, it controls transportation, it controls finance. I would remind you that today, out of top 10 banks in Russia, there is just one private bank, and uh, the state controls uh, three quarters of uh, banking sector. And so you go sector by sector, and you see that it's not just a state company's employee, but any business person somehow depends on the state. And that gives the political leverage. And that is a very important political tool, how this particular regime stays in power. You're a friend of ours, you get a job in a state company, a, cushion, a nice uh, well-paid job, and you don't re really need to work hard, and you don't have competition because state companies are protected by the state explicitly or implicitly. You don't like us, uh, we don't like you back, and so you don't have a nice job, and so it's your problem. And so in that sense, in that sense, of course, state ownership is a political tool in any country, but much more so in Russia. Yeah, and related to that, um, I was wondering if you look at a company like Gazprom that used to be worth, um, that's obviously state owned, uh, majority state owned and used to be worth more than $350 billion and now is below 70. If you are a foreign investor and you're trying to judge um, come up with a strategy for the political uh, drama. I wouldn't call it political changes, but just political drama in Ru in Russia. When do you know that uh, Russia's state-owned enterprises have kind of reached a bottom? 
um, particularly say Gazprom. When do you when how do you know it's time to buy into Gazprom? <laughs> I think uh, you need to be an optimist uh, in two dimensions. One, uh, high hydrocarbon prices. Two, uh, investment climate in Russia. Yeah. And uh, for that, I would say we have not turned the corner yet. And for hydrocarbon prices, I think in the long run, I uh, am not an optimist. I think uh, I think uh, Europe is now moving as fast as ever, and maybe even faster than expected, in the uh, in the direction of green economy transition. And the same is happening in the U.S. So we'll see crowding out of fossil fuel. Maybe not in the next few years, but uh, definitely in the next couple of decades. So this is one issue. And when you when you mentioned that Gazprom was worth 300 plus billion dollars, uh, that was in 2008. That was a moment when oil prices were 140. That is when the CEO of Gazprom, which is still a CEO of Gazprom, Alexei Miller, said that Gazprom is on track to become one trillion dollar worth company. We know that other companies have become one trillion dollars worth, and these are IT companies rather than uh, fossil fuel companies. I would just say it's unfair to compare Gazprom's uh, share price in 2008 to Gazprom's share price today mm -hmm. because of uh, change in oil prices. However, uh, you correctly mentioned the issue of governance, and this is where Gazprom is not run for shareholders. I highly recommend um, two reports written by uh, Sberbank uh, CIB, Corporate Investment Bank analyst, who was actually fired over writing those reports, uh, Alex Fack. So Alex wrote a report about Rosneft, which was called, I think, uh, we need to talk about Igor. Uh, and then the, the report about Igor Gazprom, the CEO. Igor Sechkin, the CEO of Rosneft, a longtime friend of Mr. Putin. And then the report of Gazprom, I don't re remember the title, but that report basically made a very simple point. If you think that Gazprom maximizes its share price, market capitalization, uh, then you're wrong because Gazprom's uh, job is to maximize welfare of uh, friends of Russia's rulers who are Gazprom's contractors. So whenever we talk about, for example, Nord Stream 2, Gazprom buys pipes and orders construction services from people who are very close to Vladimir Putin, and he calls them friends publicly. So these people make billions of dollars. And uh, it's a bit like with Orwell, right? In Orwell, you have war is peace. Here, cost is profit. Gazprom's cost is profit for people Russian government really cares about. And it just happens that these people are contractors of Gazprom, the cost item for Gazprom, rather than the shareholders of Gazprom. As Russian citizen, I am uh, implicitly a shareholder uh, in Gazprom, and I'm worried about this. But Gazprom is not supposed to be successful in maximizing market capitalization. In this political uh, situation, under this political regime, Gazprom's main job is uh, maximize welfare of cronies of the regime. And that job is done very well by the Gazprom management. And so the fact that Gazprom is cheap just reflects this reality. Markets are not stupid and markets are not optimistic that this political situation will change soon. Mm. But they, they get quite high dividends, right, in the meantime. So that's In the meantime, they can get quite high dividends. 
Uh, however, overall, uh, if you look not just at Gazprom, but at Russian stock prices in general, you see that compared to similar emerging markets, not just Teslas or Apples of this world, but to emerging market share prices, Russian assets um, are discounted by, I think, factor of two. I didn't look at these numbers for a while, but if you look at price earning ratios, uh, mm -hmm. Russia trades at a major discount to other developing markets, emerging markets. Often people talk about sanctions in that context, and I think it's kind of a, a blanket political discount to me sometimes seems a bit lazy uh, because obviously each, you know, each sector is really different. But do you think sanctions and the threat of sanctions have had an impact on these companies? Um, and do you think that in the long term they have a political impact, a real political impact? And is it the kind that the West would want? So uh, sanctions have had a political impact. So what is the goal of sanctions? The goal of sanctions is to bring the rule breaker to a negotiating table. That has happened uh, to Iran and that did happen to Russia in 2014, when instead of talking about uh, Novorossiya and uh, uh, annexing more territory in East Ukraine, Mr. Putin said, no, Donetsk and Lugansk are part of East Ukraine. I stopped talking about Novorossiya. Let's sign Minsk agreements. That was what we saw in the second half of 2014. In the beginning of 2014, Mr. Putin talked about Novorossiya a lot. He talked about how Russia has a right to six other regions of Ukraine, not just Crimea. This talk disappeared after more uh, impactful sanctions uh, were put in place. And uh, indeed, uh, negotiations started, means agreements uh, were signed, and the conflict was frozen. No, Mr. Putin is not giving up Crimea. These things are not changing, but at least further annexations have stopped. So in that sense, sanctions uh, have played a role. Uh, to, what extent, uh, to what extent sanctions uh, hit individual companies? Uh, think about a company like Yandex. So Yandex is not under sanctions but it's under constant pressure from Russian government. And main shocks to Yandex share price happen when Russian government wants to uh, change governance of Yandex, uh, leaks that Russian parliament is now thinking about a new law that will force Yandex to do this, this and this, and so on and so forth. And in that sense, uh, the main uh, political risk for a private company operating in Russia today is not a is not getting on Western sanction list, but more like Russian Russian government's own harassment of private sector, and that is that is of course that is of course a much uh, bigger risk. Another issue is the West mostly sanctions individuals and individual state companies, and the West says. Uh, we are not enemies of Russian people. We don't want to hurt Russian people. And of course, propaganda turns it around and says, no, the West is after Russian people. So even though it was Russian government that imposed uh, import embargo on food from the West, uh, Russians don't really know that. It's a simple fact that you can check in one click on Google, but Russians don't really know that. They thought uh, that uh, uh, food embargo is part of the sanctions regime, which is a Western part, uh, part uh, Western Western government's um, action. And the propaganda is very, very effective. It's changing, 
exactly because uh, YouTube is becoming more and more political and lots of people watch Mr. Navalny's uh, YouTube uh, channel. But still, Russians don't really understand how sanctions work. And on top of that, what happens is Mr. Putin likes his friends or he's afraid of them, I don't know, but he wants to compensate the, the losses they uh, bear because of sanctions. And there are many ways in which he awards more procurement contracts to them. He actually introduces special tax regimes for people who are under Western sanctions. And as long as this regime is in charge of Russian budget, the budget will be reallocated to pay for Western sanctions, to compensate those who are targets of Western sanctions. And even though Western sanctions are imposed on specific individuals, what happens in the end of the day that Russian pensioners and Russian taxpayers like myself pay for this uh, for the sanctions. But this, I think, is inevitable. This is just the simple implication of this particular political regime working for the cronies and not for the people, uh, using people as hostages. Yeah, I mean, you, you mentioned YouTube and um, at Davos, Putin, you know, seemed to be base speech around the growing power of tech giants. And it really seems like that they're, they're almost they're a bigger threat in a way than Navalny, because you, you know, you can get rid of an individual, but it's very hard to get rid of these corporations. What are the options? I mean, are there any options open to him to deal with these companies? There is a constant talk in Russia about kicking out Google out of Russia. The, this uh, discussion is continuing. It's not easy because uh, uh, YouTube is not just Navalny and other political YouTube channels. YouTube is also entertainment. YouTube is uh, also music videos and uh, all kinds of stuff that non-political Russian public really likes. And in that sense, uh, banning YouTube altogether is hard. It's much easier to identify specific political bloggers and kill them and poison them like they tried to do with uh, Alexei Navalny. And I think this is going to be the strategy. This has been the strategy and this is going to be the strategy. One thing which we also saw was uh, an attempt to block Telegram. The story of Telegram is, of course, fascinating. Now, today, Telegram has more users than Twitter. And so whenever we call Twitter a monopoly, we should remember that Twitter is not actually a monopoly. And we saw that alt-right migrated to Telegram and now Telegram has this problem on, yeah. on its hands. But the story of Telegram in Russia is fascinating because the founder of Telegram initially built a, a social network which was called Russian Facebook, VK, contacting. So this network played a very important role in protests of 2011 and 12. There is actually research on this which shows causal effect from penetration of uh, VK and, and anti-Putin protests back then. Then uh, the founder of VK, Pavel Durov, was forced to sell it. He sold, left Russia. And then he built, uh, he built a telegram, the messenger. And then the messenger telegram, which is not simply a messenger like WhatsApp. It includes what's called channels. So it's also online media and it can work quite effectively. And we saw that in Belarus. In Belarus, telegram has played a major role in protest. So in Russia, a government was unhappy and they officially blocked telegram. And they've been trying to block telegram for two years and they failed. And now they officially actually uh, recognize their failure 
allowed Telegram back in, and even the censor ministry itself, Roscomnadzor, opened its own Telegram channel. So it's a, it's a, it's a story that shows you that sometimes you cannot do much. And uh, maybe with YouTube, uh, Russian government will also not try to do wholesale bans. Yeah. Um, I mean, what's fascinating about your own uh, personal history is that you've actually been within the, the Russian policy-making ecosystem. Uh, you know, you mentioned Sparabank, but you actually worked with, say, the CEO, German Griff. Uh, I just was wondering whether you've ever since thought and it wasn't you know it wasn't really your choice to leave if you could explain that as well but have you ever wondered whether you could have affected more difference and um, had more impact if you'd been still on the inside as opposed to exiled on the outside uh, thanks Dasha indeed uh, I've been on the inside I've never been a government employee but I was in various capacities uh, an advisor to the government uh, back uh, then, uh, mostly during Medvedev's presidency 2008-2012, uh, less so in uh, a year after that, before I left, I left in 2013, and uh, uh, I did as much as I could. I tried to made, make an impact, but uh, at some point uh, uh, I was forced out, exactly because uh, I thought I still need to speak out, and I, I thought, and I still think, that for economic growth in Russia, you need uh, institutional reforms, fighting corruption, reducing the role of the state, inviting foreign direct investment, not just running a conservative macro policy and uh, inflation targeting as a monetary policy. These are right policies, but economic growth doesn't come just from conservative macro policy. You need good investment climate. And that would require more open political system and would require rule of law. And uh, I spoke about that privately and publicly, and that resulted in uh, in uh, me facing investigators who told me that I should leave, otherwise I would face trouble. They literally compared me to Akademishan Sakharov. This is the biggest achievement of my career. Uh, general, general, uh, general from the investigative committee telling me that I shouldn't complain because life of Akademishan Sakharov was actually much worse. Um, and uh, uh, yet, uh, what I what I would say is, uh, uh, I, I tried, and ma many other people tried. And the very fact that none of those reforms were implemented suggests to you that technocrats on this side can do some things and cannot do other things. They can do um, monetary policy well, and they've done that. Prudential regulation regulation, you have lots of questions. On In terms of prudential regulation, some uh, dirty financial institutions were closed down and cleaned up. Um, but state-owned banks, which are also very corrupt, except for Sberbank, as I, as I mentioned, some state banks are, have been allowed to operate, even though it is well known that these are corrupt institutions. Uh, and uh, so on and so forth. And uh, in that sense, this government believes it needs to keep corruption in place because that's how they reward their cronies. This regime believes that rule of law is dangerous for them, and that's why you don't have rule of law to, uh, 
today in Russia, and that eventually results in slowdown in economic growth and stagnation. And uh, there is there is not much more uh, we can do. And uh, I tried to do what I could, but uh, eventually I had to I had to leave. Thank you very much, Sergey. That's our show for this week. I would like to thank my guest, Sergey Guriev, and our producer, Freddie Joyner in New York. Our final thanks goes to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Subscribe to get The Exchange and our sister podcast, Reusroom, on SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Check us out every single day on breakingviews.com. And don't forget to tune in next week for another edition of The Exchange. <laughs>